you're sitting one day in New York, you're reading a newspaper about the coming extinction of Borneo's orangutans, and you say to yourself, I have to do something. You're not a primatologist, a trained conservationist. You don't even have a basic biology degree. That was the challenge that faced our next guest. Welcome to Talking Apes. Joining me this time on Talking Apes is the man that said, none of that is going to stop me from trying to help. Richard Zimmerman, the founder of the nonprofit Orangutan Outreach. The U.S.-based nonprofit whose mission is to save critically endangered orangutans and protect their wild rainforest homes. And his story is an inspiration to all of us who ask ourselves at one time or another, what can I do? I'm just one person. Hi, I'm your host, Jerry Ellis, and you're listening to Talking Apes, where we explore the world of apes and primates with experts, conservationists, and passionate primate lovers like Richard Zimmerman from around the world. Talking Apes is a podcast that gets to the very heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. The Talking Apes podcast is made possible by generous support from listeners like you to nonprofit Globio at globio.org. This segment of Talking Apes was originally recorded as a live Instagram event. I'm really excited. Um, to talk to Richard today. This is, of course, um, International Orangutan Day, so it's a it's a double celebration. Getting to talk to you about uh, about red apes and and what you're doing, but also to celebrate this uh, amazing day. So, um, one thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, we did a little research and we couldn't figure out when was the first um, International Orangutan Day. Do you have any idea? Ooh, that's a good question. I don't even know. Um, it's been not quite 10 years. Let's see, it's maybe eight years, seven years. It's it's one of these things that just, uh, you know, it was started almost on a lark a few years ago, mm-hmm. and, it, and it's just sort of kept going. And, and But yeah, maybe someone commenting will know the date. I think it was around 2012. Yeah, if, if anybody out there who happens to know Give us, yeah. give us a, a heads up on that because we 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 went searching on the internet we couldn't find anything popping up so anyway it's an important day to uh, to celebrate an important day for all of us to try to figure out how to get involved and yeah um you are you're the master at how to get involved I mean and, and maybe that's a great place to start um, is that uh, being the founder of orangutan outreach, in you know, going back and looking at some previous interviews that you had done, and and looking at your whole background, I mean, you you really are. I, I think of you as a conservation hero in many many ways because <laughs> you are to me you epitomize what all of us should be thinking about. It's like you're not a primatologist, you're not a, a conservation scientist. You came at this like all of us do in many ways and saying, what can I do to help? So, yeah. fill fill us in a Thanks. little bit on your background. I love orangutans. <laughs> and there we go. Um, Simple as that. In a way, it is. I've loved them since I'm a child, and I did not go in the into a field of biology. I, you know, I loved Jane Goodall as a child, like like everyone else. But I didn't. I didn't pursue it. I went in other directions. But the love for orangutans was has always been with me. Um, it's an obsession. Uh, it's nonstop, as you can see behind me. Is my <laughs> it is. it's everywhere. It's on me. It's, 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 we've it's, got a few of them around here as well. So they uh, 
they, they populate all of our lives. They're everywhere. Um, but no, what I what I did is I is you know a lot of my background is international policy. I did a lot of IT work. I was in education for a while, and what happened was I realized that you know we we'd always been talking about oh they're on the verge of extinction. They could go extinct. You know we're losing the forests, and it it. it hit me that it wasn't this wasn't just words it, 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 I, I realized oh my god these orangutans who I adore are on the cusp of extinction and so I tried to figure out a way to help and you know without you know not being a, a very wealthy person what could I do and so at the time I offered skills to existing organizations some of which some of them are now our partners now going on 13 years um, and I went to Indonesia for the, for a first time in 2000, I think 2006. And what I thought would be the lush jungle with orangutans and some sort of fantasy in my own head turned out to be devastation and destruction and burned out land and hundreds and hundreds of orangutans in cages. And it, it freaked me out. It depressed me. I couldn't sleep. And, and I, it, it just, it, it was the worst thing I could have ever imagined. And what I did is I, I sort of like said to myself, all right, you know, at the time I was working at UNICEF and, and the big campaigns we were working on were all about outreach. So I said, damn, the, the orangutans need outreach. And I realized, oh, that's some, some good alliteration. So mm -hmm. we said, oh, I said, all right, let's, let's try to create orangutan outreach. And I uh, used my, my burgeoning IT skills of, of you know, circa 2007 um, to get things going and, and started supporting our first partner, who's the Borneo Orangutan Survival Foundation. And uh, we, we joined up just in time for a TV show called Orangutan Island. And, you know, that's very relevant because I, I'm, I'm dear friends with the executive producer of that series. And, and we've gone on to, to work together and she sits on our board. Her name, name is Judith and we love her to death. And she executive produced Orangutan Jungle School, which is currently airing all over the world. Right. Um, also filmed at, at Bas Nyarumenteng. Um, but what happened was I went to visit and, and realized I had to do more. Started an organization. Um, it, it started slowly, but it grew and grew and grew. And, and it, it generates a, a, a great amount of funding for these projects. So we've made a difference over these years to save orangutans, to rescue, to rehabilitate, to release, um, not without our ups and downs, of course, um, but we've, we've, we're still here, which some days I'd say, oh my God, how is this still happening? <laughs> um, yes, really. in, running, in running a nonprofit, I, I understand yeah. exactly <laughs> what you mean by that. And uh, especially in interesting times like we're, we're dealing with right now. Well, I do want to interject that you said you've, you've raised a lot of money. I mean, the last figure I heard was over $3 million. Yeah, we're well over that. I yeah, think we're, okay. We're over I mean, four at this point. Wow. And, and the important thing is, I mean, obviously money is important to run these projects. Right. Because there's so many mouths to feed and, and staffing and, and everything. But it's been consistent. And that's really one of the things that, that enables me to sleep at night. Uh, first and foremost, because, you know, I'm, I'm the crazy guy, you know, running the ship. Debbie works with me now and she's, she's watching us, I think. Um, she handles <laughs> yeah, I a lot think of I, I saw this. 
interesting. I, I go crazy on the social media. You know, I, I react very quickly and succinctly with, and, you know, and I, and I, again, I'm in New York, so I have certain, uh, shall we say, verbal tics <laughs> um, that I have trouble containing. But, well, especially in August, yeah. because all the don't all the psychiatrists go on holiday in August <laughs> in New York. So I think you know everybody there has a few ticks at this time of year. At this time, given what we've gone through, I mean, oh yeah, in, 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 anything goes. But, but, but really, that's interesting. What I mean, you say what you've gone through, and I guess that's that's why I brought this up in how you founded it, and and thanks for that that little background to it because. People always say, you know, what can I do? I live here. I can't go off to Borneo or go off to Sumatra. I can't volunteer or commit a couple of years of my life or something. And that that's what I think is really extraordinary about what you have done and what you have done with Orangutan Outreaches. You've done a masterful job of keeping your ego out of this, I think. I mean, you have really been committed to orangutans and not, I mean, you work with all these organizations. Your, your organization is not trying to... to steal the limelight and be mm-hmm. the one that everybody understands or recognizes and throws all the money at. I mean, you've managed- no, We would like that. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> but, but you've managed to negotiate some pretty tricky waters. I mean, one somebody once said to me, yeah. if we could just get conservation organizations to leave their logos and egos at the door, we could have a meeting and get something really done. You've done a, a really masterful job at, at sort of leaving the logo and ego at the door and only bringing it in when you needed to, especially yeah. in the United States, I think. And yeah. and as a consequence, you do have all these partners in Borneo and Sumatra who um, you work with, you you support, and, and they benefit from, from what you've been able to do. Yeah, it hasn't been easy. It's, it's, it's crazy, you know, managing all the relationships and, and making sure everyone is happy and no, no one is pissed off that, that someone saw this picture of this orangutan and then gave money for that organ, you know. It, it is, there's a little, you know, maneuvering going on to make sure everyone's happy. But I, I find that, again, I don't want my ego in it. This is one of the, I don't even like talking in public. I, you know, I, I've known you for a few years, so I'm like, okay, we can do this. But I, I try to keep myself behind the curtain. It's really about the orangutans. They're far more attractive than I am. You know, who wants to see this when you can see a, a, a cheek pad or like, <laughs> Jojo. Um, but really, it's, it's about them. And, mm-hmm. you know, as human beings, I think to a certain extent, we're all selfish creatures. But what I've really focused on and tried to do is make sure that that focus goes to the orangutans and the organizations in the field on the ground that are caring for them. Because again, I, I can do what I can do here in upstate New York. But ultimately, it's in, the fate of the orangutans is in the hands of these amazing people on the ground, people in Indonesia or, or also in Malaysia. But, but the, the people there need to, need to care. They need to have an income. They need to be invested in, in the system. They need to want to, to save the orangutans. And, and my ego would not help that. You know, I, I have my own energy to push, the, push forward a message and marketing and, and the branding and such. But again, it's it, it wouldn't help. There are you know there are people who do similar things to what I do whose ego is is off the charts, and they know who they are. It's crazy. It's mind blowing when you think about it. It's like, what, what, it's like if you put yourself in the in the, the shoes of a donor or a supporter who just wants to help orangutans, 
we, we got to get away from this cult of personality. I mean, at every level in our society, no more cults of personality. Right. It's <laughs> kind of it. Speaking of projects, I mean, I read in an interview, I think you did in about 2014 or something, and you were talking about, you know, your, your first goal is to try to get as many orangutans back in the wild, save the wilds as much as we can, get orangutans back into the wild. And fortunately, orangutans are one of the, the few large, uh, well, great apes, but and, and primates in general that you can put back in the wild. Um, given the right opportunities. But there are a lot of orangutans that will never go back in the wild, um, that are yeah. in sanctuaries that have been injured in one way. Um, you know, that their situation is just different. And I know that's something that you have been been working really diligently at um, because the thing I read, it said something about comfort and dignity. Those were the two words that, that you used. And those seem to be words that have resonated throughout your, your career and your life knowing um, orangutans in other things that I read about you. So talk to, talk to us a little bit about the project that you're working on, what you guys are doing with um, orangutans that can't be released. Yeah, I mean, and you, everything you've just said, you, you kind of nailed it. You know, they, they, they're not objects. You know, these these are living beings with 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 a consciousness and and good days and bad days, and they they we don't want to rescue them so they can sit in a cage. That's the last thing anybody wants, and it's just heartbreaking to to rescue an orangutan and have him or her have to sit in a cage for years and years and years, maybe die in that cage. And you know, orangutan outreach has been around long enough now. You know, we were founded at when did I start? In two thousand seven. So it's been around long enough so that some of the orangutans we rescued a long time ago are still in cages, and and it, oh. I, I lose sleep every night over it. You know, Pinky is one of our, our famous beautiful ladies who we rescued her so long ago. She's still in a cage. Um, so what we're doing, you know, each project on the ground has a, has a slightly different scenario in terms of physical space, access to wild forest, um, how they're rehabilitating in, in the sense of, you know, whether they're rehabbed locally or whether they're in a forest. Uh, and so each project, and, and I'm really speaking mainly in Borneo of, of, of the Boss Foundation and International Animal Rescue, and in mm -hmm. Sumatra, I'm speaking mainly of SOCP, because they're the, they're the ones running these big projects with so many orangutans of every size, shape, and personality imaginable. In SOCP's case, what, what Dr. Ian Singleton is doing is he's building, or he's, he's, he's essentially built a, a, a conservation space called the Orangutan Haven. Mm -hmm. And so the unreleasable orangutans that they care for in Sumatra will go there to live. And, and little islands, but no, no cages, no, no ceiling, so they can at least see the sky, um, where they'll be cared for with dignity. Um, and respect uh, and comfort for the rest of their lives because they can live long lives. And orangutan can, I think, live into their 60s. Right, right. It varies. But in Borneo, the situation is, is a lot more complex. Uh, in Sumatra, it, it's, it's not easy, but there's fewer orangutans. <coughs> Excuse me. In Borneo, you have different organizations in different provinces dealing with different subspecies. And, and there's a, a, a lot of... Uh, puzzle pieces to move around and make sure everyone's in the right place and who goes where and and who can mix and and in a case like uh boss you know you have more than a hundred 
adult male, male orangutans, beautiful, handsome cheek patterns. And they all just can't go onto an island and hang out together. Right. If there's a female around, they're going to fight. If, you know, if there's not enough food, they're going to fight. You know, it's just, you know, again, the orangutan. I think one of the things that's been really eye-opening to me when I first started working in, in Borneo and filming there was the fact that I, I think I was at, at Carmeli's place in, in West Kalimantan yeah. looking at the enclosures that she has a, a couple of males that can never go back in the wild. And yeah. the size right. and the strength of those enclosures was extraordinary. I mean, when you, you think it really brought home how powerful these big males yeah. are. And I, I think that gets lost on people too, when they think, well, first of all, I mean, none of us like to see them in cages, but when you do have to utilize uh, some kind of cage facility, it has to be incredibly powerful and strong. Plus you're dealing with an animal that is, you know, it's the heaviest arboreal mammal on the planet. So it wants to be up off the ground. So you have to build, and in the case of, the, of those enclosures, I, I know they're they're probably 40 feet, 50 feet high. Yeah. So that they have vertical the space. But it's so they have cage, that vertical space. We yeah. think of it as a condo, I guess, as, as yeah. opposed to a condo of cages. Because right. there's vertical space, there's movement. You know, they obviously get great nutrition, great medical care, enrichment, and, and they have companions if, if, it, if the situation warrants. Um, you have groups of ladies who, who are all together. Um, but it is, a, it is a, a tricky situation. You want them off the ground, obviously, so they're in raised cages. But ideally, they're moved onto islands or into giant enclosures. And, and what BOSS does, which is pretty amazing, is they have access to islands where they do the rehabilitation of the younger orangutans. And sometimes some of the bigger orangutans who are unreleasable will be able to spend time on those islands. You know, and they're smart. They understand who, who's... Who, who's caring for them? They they understand often the who you know which is the hand that feeds, right? Um, so so they they know how to play the game, um, but there are there are ultimately going to be hundreds of them. and what what Boss has done at their Samboja facility and, and hopefully soon with the Nyarimenteng facility in central Kalimantan is is man-made islands. You know they won't be huge, but they'll be forested and they'll be outdoors, mm -hmm. and the. the we're, our, our hope is that some of these cheek batters will be able to go onto the islands um, to, to get out of the cages. And, it, you know, it's going to take a lot of money. It's going to take a lot of space and a lot of work. But, but just to get back to Carmeli, um, that's something that we've been working on now for, for she and I have been talking about it for a decade. But, but it's finally starting to happen is, is what IR is doing, and, and we're honored to help, is they're, they're building out one-acre forested enclosures so that's a big i mean it's like a football field essentially a right. forested space for these unreleasable adult orangutans to go into it's to be determined how they go in it'll be through a shoot system you know much like you have in the sanctuaries in north america like at the center for great apes our dear mm -hmm. friend shout out to patty reagan those orangutans who are unreleasable will have access maybe 24-hour access we don't know but access to these giant outdoor spaces. So they'll get out of the cages and into the spaces. It'll be a much better life. They'll have space. The orangutans want privacy. They want to be in the trees. They, you know, they just, they want to do their thing. And our big highlight right now for International Orangutan Day has been promoting this amazing cheek pattern named Jojo. And again, they're all amazing. So, you know, I run out of superlatives to talk about. <laughs> right. right. But basically, 
Jojo, I happen to be on that rescue. You know, I've, I've been there, you know, almost yearly for the last decade. But again, my role is, is here, raising money for them mm -hmm. to do the work. But I happen to be there when Carmeli rescued Jojo. And, you know, it's just heartbreaking because he was he's such a beautiful orangutan and he'd had such poor nutrition that he, he doesn't have full access to, to, he can't move his legs 100%. Yeah, he's still beautiful and powerful and strong and moves around, but he wouldn't be able to survive in the wild. He wouldn't know. So, you know, he's been sitting there and he grew up, and, you know, he started, he was little, and then they, they reached the phase where their cheeks start to move a little and they, the beard comes down. And then all of a sudden you walk out there one day and boom. So Jojo, Jojo will go into one of these enclosures. If I, if I have my way, which Carmeli will probably, you know, slap me, <laughs> Pinky goes in the other, you know, my beloved Pinky. Mm -hmm. You know, they'll be the king and queen of Ketapan. But again, Carmela's <laughs> boss. Um, Maybe there's a movie there, the king and queen of Ketapan. <laughs> exactly. And then the birth control will fail. And then, you know, <laughs> uh-oh. Yeah. Okay. Talk about uh, the candidates that go for release. Um, what, what kind of criteria, like you were mentioning, I mean, some of them, they move to islands. There's a process. This is not just one day all of a sudden you release an orangutan. It's, you know, you, you move them out. Um, I just saw Carmeli a year ago, her whole new setup for, for babies with surrogate moms. Um, you know, she became, as you know, she became rather famous for putting uh, these babies into wheelbarrows. And then that became this, this gigantic kind of viral attraction. of hey, boss was photos. doing that years ago. And, and it just drove her, drove her crazy, though. I mean, yeah. it's like everybody who came there, every film crew that came there, wanted to photograph these babies oh. in wheelbarrows. And it was like the last thing in the world, because what it meant, of, of course, was that there were too many babies. And yeah. they couldn't. It's tragic. Carry them we smile, but we're crying. Yes. Yeah. yeah exactly. I mean, yeah. and and she she just kept she kept saying, you know, if people would just get it through their heads that every one of those babies means a disaster in the forest, a yeah. mother that's died, that burned in fires, whatever. Um, and now she's gone to the surrogate mother system where they've got some of the females who may not be able to go back in the wild or some that could be candidates, but there'll be small babies that go with them, and they start building up these. Yeah. We have a great example of this. When we when we first started working with IAR back in 2009, um, and this, when we rescued Jojo, one of the babies, you know, I think there were five orangutans when, when it first got going at Ketapang. Um, and one of those babies was Monty. This teeny, tiny, cutest, you know, again, they're all cute. They're all adorable. We love them. But Monty was, was just Oh, breathtaking, and and we put her in the adoption program, and she's had supporters uh, through our, through our adoptions for a decade. She grew up. She had been coddled as a, as one of the early babies, and so Carmeli didn't know if Monty would really be tough enough to to go wild. But she, the instincts kicked in. Monty grew up, turned turned into a perfect candidate, and Carmeli put baby Angun, adorable little new 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 little guy, with Monty. You know, just. You know, we, we tell the story on our website, redaids.org slash Monty goes wild or, or something fun like that. As Monty spent more time with the baby, it's like her own maternal instincts kicked in. Fascinating. And someone should do a doctoral thesis mm -hmm. on it. And eventually, Monty and the baby went wild. So somewhere out there now in Bukit Baka, Bukit Raya National Park, Monty a rescued orangutan is trudging around in the trees with baby Angun. 
it's, it's so it's a fascinating, it's one of the few positive stories we have because most of what we deal with is death and destruction and deforestation. But Monty and baby Angun was this perfect example of, of wow, you can, you can almost match them up. Well, that's what was so fascinating. You know, when, when Carmelia and I, she was showing me some of the work they're doing around the surrogate mother approach, they had actually gotten in a, a small baby that had spent enough time being wild and they had an orphan mom who had had grown up there or yes. not mom, but an or potential yeah. mother. And the wild baby was actually influencing her, which was this orphan that was now, you know, she was nine years old, 10 years old or something like that, you know, yeah. um, a candidate for release. And hopefully soon, like you said, there's, there's a doctoral thesis there. Yeah. Sure somebody wanted to, you know, invest and get going with it. But yeah, so, yeah. so going back to the, the candidate question, are there a handful of things that you would say are prime for a, an orangutan that's now available to go back in the wild that it shows like it says you know one two three four five things okay now i'm ready to go i mean what what are those kinds of things for somebody yeah, who's yeah, never been definitely. in that situation and it's been good this whole system of, of rehabilitation has been going long enough now so that there have been it's well tested in terms of skill sets and these sorts of things so it's now based on on a lot of anecdotes you know you know when they're ideally I mean, ideally, there's no, you know, they're all safe in the forest. But the ones who come in, they go into, you know, just using boss as the reference point. They start with, you know, nursery school or baby school. And they're all, you know, they, they get 24-hour care when they're tiny the way they would with, in the, you know, had they been with their mothers in the wild. And they, as they get a little older, they move into what's called forest school. And they're, and they're socialized together, which is rare, another, another doctoral thesis at some point. And they grow up and they, they learn from each other. They have various, you know, in any cohort of, of young orangutans, there's some that had more skills developed in the wild with their mother and some that had fewer. And so you always have these beautiful, I mean, these moments of them learning and teaching each other, which is what the show Orangutan Jungle School is about. The whole, the series just depicts this. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they, you know, they learn what to eat they learn how to forage you know the boss babysitters or the ir babysitters or the soscp babysitters teach them and show them and they and they learn you know you thank god for instinct because you know it goes in and, and something clicks um, and they learn from each other and they learn from older orangutans and what happens is they, they their instinct is to get off the ground they go into the trees and you know and they they realize that there's you know if their forest school is in the, is in the real forest you know again within the boundary of a center there's better fruit up in the trees than what they get as their as their snack so they have more desire to go into the canopy and they again they develop relationships with each other and then they mm -hmm. They move in groups. Basically, they they become orangutans. They they move from just being these cute little almost plush toys. They turn into real orangutans who who have these skill sets and they learn how to build nests. And there's these great stories of them learning and then some a little slower than others. <laughs> you know, they swing and they fall. You know, and again, it's yep. like human kids learning how to play. And yeah. so basically, as they get a little older, they move on to islands. And this is also the age where they get a lot stronger and they learn that they can bite the ladies that are caring for them and they can take the basket, overturn it and take all the food and run. You know, so they, so they basically become, uh, I guess, junior high schoolers. Out of control teenagers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then they hit puberty and then it's out of control and they're 
they're on the islands and they're big groups. And I like to think of it sometimes as Lord of the Flies, but I don't even know if that reference makes sense anymore. Um, <laughs> it but, does. <laughs> but they're they're out there and, and they, they just, they, they spend more and more time without humans and they're on the islands and they're, they're on their own. You know, again, there's humans making sure they're eating and making sure right. they're not terrorizing each other too much, just to keep things at least semi-sane. But, but they just spend more time out there. They mentally rewild and they, they get to a point where boss observers, for instance, or, or at any center are able to really go down this checklist and say, all right, mm -hmm. he or she is, has been able to do this. They can do the nest. They can swing around. They're out. They're happy to go out there. They don't want to come in. They don't want to be near the humans, which is good because the next human they see in the wild might not be their friend. And once they, they, they then of course the medical tests are all done to make sure that God forbid they had some human born illness um, to make sure they're all, all 100% clean to go back into the wild. They're, the releases are scheduled in groups, you know, and, and again, boss has larger numbers of, of individuals. So they're bigger groups that go out. Sometimes a dozen of them. Carmele's group, usually a, a smaller group because they have smaller numbers, but mm -hmm. then they'll be taken out you know, as a release and, you know, they'll be chipped so they can be followed uh, through GPS and then teams will stay with them in the forest. And again, IAR and BOSS are brilliant about employing local villagers in the release areas to, to get them uh, to have stakes in the system and they, everybody wants it to work. You want them involved. Yeah. Even if you have a prime piece of land and, and that's a problem in Borneo too with palm oil and, and, and the fires, in the last several yeah. years that have yeah. been a huge problem, destroying potential release habitat. But even if you have a secure habitat, you also have to go in ahead of time and do big surveys to see what's the orangutan population that's already there. You can't just yeah. Yeah. insert these individuals into a place in which orangutans have a territory because they'll be forced out. And I know in some situations, both in Sumatra and in Borneo, that's been a problem where individuals made me think of it as you putting uh talking about the gps tracking is they would see individuals being pushed to the perimeters of these these release areas and then often on the perimeter would be uh, a palm oil plantation so yeah. now you have that individual coming in conflict with the yeah. palm oil plantation and then you've got to re-rescue them again yeah that, that, um, you never want you don't want to see them again that's the irony you, know, you exactly. just want them out there happy and healthy and reproducing. And again, we've been doing this long enough that, you know, our boss is finally under Jamartin. They've been doing a tremendous amount of releases. It's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And Jamartin's the CEO of boss in case anyone right. wonders who Jamartin is, um, but he's really gotten this release program going. So there's so many that have gone out that they've started reproducing. So that's the best sign of all that this, there's a successful a release program is when you have these rescued orangutans who grew up in a rescue center who are released who then have a baby and raise that baby wild so again mm -hmm. this is longitudinal research we have right. to keep an eye on all this up until this this freaking virus struck the releases have gone up and okay. what's happened is boss has been operating in east and central kalimantan and and with various release sites and ir has been in west kalimantan and they've, the two of them have been using this gigantic park called Bukit Baka, Bukit Raya. It, it, it's phenomenal when you, when, you, when you see the footage of this place. You know, I, I've seen a teeny corner of it. So there's more space to keep it going. But now the problem is the virus because the virus stopped all operations, essentially. 
because God forbid there is a COVID case in a center, the last thing you would ever want is, is to, you know, infect a wild population with anything. But this, it's just, there's too much unknown. I know we've uh, been in contact with a few folks there about, you know, how things have impacted them. Just the, just the price of medical supplies, mass going up, you know, it's been, there's been a lot of pressure, but maybe you can, um, you can shed some light on some of the things that, that you know about that, how COVID has affected them in both in Borneo and Sumatra. Fortunately, there, there are no COVID cases among the orangutans, although we suspect that they're susceptible because they're, all, they're susceptible to the cold, the flu, the TB, uh, hepatitis. So, so the suspicion is it could affect them. But fortunately, we're not dealing with that. But what the centers have had to do is reduce their staff, you know, you know because the, they have, were concerned about the humans, <laughs> to make sure people are safe. And so you've had staff reduction, which, you know, in a case like, you know, like boss, you know, you're dealing with hundreds and hundreds of orangutans and, and they all need to be fed. They all need to be enriched. They, it's, it's a big operation with, with IAR. I think there's about a hundred there now. Ian right. is probably pushing up to towards a hundred, but you, you need to be careful with the, the human, the human element. So we have staff reductions um, less hours put in at the center, so it becomes tricky to make sure all the work gets done. You have, of course, the price of PPE, because just as it was off, off the charts in, in New York and New Zealand and everywhere, in the middle of Borneo, where it's already sometimes difficult to, to secure materials, the prices skyrocketed. You know, you had price gouging, you had, you know, everything that happens anywhere in, a, in an epidemic or pandemic. The price of food started fluctuating. And, you know, we're not just talking about $100. We're talking, you know, food for hundreds of orangutans every day. And while mm -hmm. it's Borneo and, it, and it's a lot cheaper than it is in New York, it's still, it all adds up. And, then, you know, that's where an organization like Orangutan Outreach can really step up and do fundraising drives to just get additional funds to the projects to make sure to cover these deficits. But, you know, and it, in addition... Uh, some of the projects have volunteer programs throughout the year, non, no touching, no contact, but volunteers go in and, and they work on enrichment. They help build out facilities that, you know, they, they do non things where you don't cuddle orangutans to be clear, right. but that's income that's lost. And, you know, so year to year, an organization like Voss had been counting on that, you know, X number of, of volunteers paying to go to help. So, so that's a loss of revenue. Um, there's generally just uncertainty and then, you know, it freaks people out. You know, everybody's had to be sheltering in place. And, you know, when you're at home, not able to go into an office and, you know, and again, these are rescue centers, but these rescue centers also have office operations where you have the people who deal with communications and deal with government issues and deal with, with office stuff, business stuff. And that's all affected. And, and, Basically, that's the team that supports this team on staff, or the, the staff at the center, rather. And so it, it's almost like the whole train gets stopped. And then, you know, you wonder, how long is this going to continue? We don't know. And I mean, we really don't, we don't know. We I did an interview know. back in February where at one point I stopped and I think I, I said the date just to always sound like so we could look back and, and say, oh, wow, this is what we were thinking in February. You know, meanwhile, here you and I are, you know, mid-August, and we still don't know. We don't know what's going to happen with winter. And it, it's 
it's daunting. And when you think about having to make sure you have the funding in place to care for hundreds of orangutans who may not be able to be released for whatever reason, and then you all of a sudden have fire season coming, so right. we may have to deal with catastrophic fires again. Or, you know, again, if we, if we had hair, we would pull it out. You know? <laughs> it's like, ah. I think we both did. That's yeah, why we're in this, the, the state that we're in. Yeah, and, and that's a good point. I mean, we're right on the cusp of fire season there. Yeah. Uh, fingers crossed that that's, that's not going to be an issue. In your experience, how, how supportive have locals been? Not just the people who are employed, but I mean, in general, the awareness of locals to, to the orangutan situation in Borneo and Sumatra, to their supportedness or lack of support, um, both financially and just ethically and morally. How would you describe it? Um, again, I don't have firsthand knowledge because I'm so far away. But what I can say is that these projects employ local people, almost exclusively local people. You know, to whatever extent imaginable, local people are, are, are brought in as, as either babysitters or, or the technicians or they're trained up to, to, to do, you know, the, 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 you know, they're not the eye surgeons necessarily. Mm -hmm. But the, the local people are, are brought into the project in, in a way that, you know, you want inclusivity. You want the people to love the, pro, to love the orangutans and love the project. You know, is everyone happy? No. But I think especially in these remote areas, IR and BOSS especially work with the local villages. And these are very remote areas. And they, and they want to make sure that there's medical attention for the humans. You know, you want to make sure that people have a good situation. You know, you don't want them to have to cut down a tree to, to, to sell, to save, to get money, to, to go to a doctor. You want everyone involved. Again, you're dealing with situations where the easy out for many people is to just sell off to oil palm. You know, and again, it's easy for us to sit here outside and, and point a finger, but we, we're not living there. We're not in it. And, you know, we, you know, if, if we're ever allowed to go back, we, we ultimately get back on a plane and leave. Mm -hmm. uh, but that, from what I've seen, there's a lot of buy-in. You know, there's a lot of interest. Um, I can tell you that the centers, you know, like a center like Bosnia Romenteng or IR Ketapeng, they buy a lot of fruit and a lot of vegetable. They keep the farmers busy. They keep the farmers in business. Yeah. And you also have a, an, an amazing, you know, a big workforce. You know, IAR now has a giant conservation center. You know, and again, putting the whole COVID thing aside, mm -hmm. hopefully, forever, mm -hmm. you're dealing with a lot of people. And these people go eat, they go have a tea or a coffee. They, they, it's, it's, a, it's an economy, just like anywhere else. It, it, these are local areas, the remote areas. The, you know, these aren't big urban centers. SOCP is a little different because their main facility is in Medan, in an urban center. But with IR and BOSS, they're, they're more or less remote. You know, it's, it's like whatever they're doing, they're bringing, they're bringing funds into the local economy. And right. I, I think that's a very good thing. You know, for some of the, again, BOSS, Nero Henteng has been there for so many years now, decades, that you've had generations of people growing up with it. So the people who grow up and their children can now work there. One of the things that I've been fascinated by in working with folks there on the ground is this transition that's gone on over the last decade or so between just purely being rescue center, reaching out, saving an orangutan, bringing it back, trying to get it healthy enough, hopefully to go back and watch, to this shift to becoming conservation organizations. There's 
so much more emphasis put on. I mean, I remember Carmeli saying to me once, she said, I will be so happy the day I can shut the doors and we don't have another baby arrive. Yeah. And and I said, so then 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 you can relax. He goes, Oh no, there's so much conservation work to do. And yeah. there and that has increased over time. I mean, she's yeah. become in her case, she's become less a vet and more the director of a conservation, you know, orangutan rescue organization. So there is a lot of work to be done um, because of so much destruction over the last couple of decades. And, and, and there's a need to regrow forest. You know, we work with Borneo Nature Foundation, um, who, who who's operate in Palanca Raya, right, right, uh, you know, right near Boss, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and they have a, an amazing uh, campsite. Uh, their their whole operation is in the forest. And right. had they not been there, that forest would be long gone. That's for sure. But what they do is work with the local villages, and, and it's a forest regeneration program. So we're again, we're having to think really far out. And and I mean, the beauty of the forest. I mean, Borneo in particular. I mean, there's it's an eighty plus million year old you know rainforest, and it given half a chance, it will regenerate. And you know, some of the tree planting programs we're working with Carmeli on something called the Orangutan Tree Project, and it's a, a seedling project and trying to get in thousands of seedlings into the ground in areas that were burnt a few years ago in the 2015 fires. And those are the kinds of things that go on where if you can, if you can just get the force ticked yeah. back into gear, it will take care of itself. Yeah. And, and you'll not only have a place to put orangutans back into there, but you have all the other species, proboscis yeah. and whatever else. So yeah, there's, there's a huge effort, even if we were yeah. rescuing orangutans and all of this. I just want to point out that um, redapes.org is, is uh, if you're not familiar, if you came to us through our Apes Like Us program, check out everything that Richard and, and everybody are doing at redapes.org. We'll have a link on our site and what's happening in the next few months, year. Well, again, we're working towards sanctuary space. And hopefully with, with a let up or an ease of the COVID situation, we can move forward with that. The orangutan adoptions really keep all this going. It's, mm. it's we, you know, after 12 years, we finally raised the price. So now they're 15 bucks a month. Which is really standards. ridiculous if you think about it. Yeah. I mean, um, so yeah. for 15 bucks a month, you adopt an orangutan. We, we, have, we have too many in the program. We have, we have like 500 in the program now. That, that, seriously, that, I think there's like 20 in the program now. You, you basically, you pay your monthly fee. You get online access to adopt. Um, what we have now, babies, we have cheek patters, we have old ladies who we love to death. So we have a whole variety of orangutans in the adoption program. And, and it's been going strong since 2007. Blows and, my mind. Yeah, and, and the adoption, I just want to, I want to plug the old, the older folks there. The adoption of of the older orangutans is especially those who can't be released. It, there's a lot of medical care that goes into geriatric apes. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. they have, if you think of all of the things that go into taking care of humans as they get older, they suffer with dementia. They suffer with, you know, their bones Diabetes. riddle. Diabetes. Diabetes, they get cataracts. All kinds of <laughs> things. And in fact, when I, I saw, uh, when we were filming with Carmeli last time, she, start, she was showing me, they're doing all this research into malaria, and some of the malarias are specific to orangutans. Yeah. They're looking at those that might even be specific to some of the orangutans that are in long-term care. All of that has to has to be faced. So when you're out there thinking of adopting, maybe think of adopting one of the, the older ones as well.
I, also, I often joke because one of the babies, um, who's not a baby anymore, um, but one he's a, he's cared for at Ketapang. His name Gunung, and he's got right. this angelic face. I mean, again, for me, crazy me, they're all angels. But for <laughs> Gunung, that photo went around the world, and so he has so many adoptive parents. But I, I sit there and it drives me mad. So I'm like, it's not fair. <laughs> he's he's so cute that, that it's like <laughs> other orangutans don't get adopted because right. of Gunung. <laughs> And, and it, you know, this is what this is what keeps me up at night. Is how do we, you know, <laughs> how do, you know, you know we, we we need the revenue. We need we need to keep giving IAR funds, and and but Gunung is like too cute. <laughs> like, maybe we'll use an ugly photo, but the, but there's no ugly photos. <laughs> well, since since yeah. they keep you up at night, you're going to need to get some extra rest. So I'm going to let you go, and I'm, I I just really want to thank you so much for for taking the time today. Um, it was actually a little bit of short notice to get a hold of you, but and we'll do this again. Um, totally. Ho hopefully, we can do one of these live from Borneo or something at some point in the hopefully future. Hopefully, we can go to Borneo. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But um, again, it's redapes.org. Um, if you haven't been on, jump on the site and see everything that uh, Richard and everyone are doing. And once again, I'd like to thank Richard Zimmerman for taking his time to be with us and for sharing his passion and devotion to saving wild orangutans. You've been listening to Talking Apes, where each episode we explore the world of apes with experts from research to outreach, with passionate primate people, and with conservationists from around the world. Our guests are at the forefront of what's happening with our wild ape cousins. You can find previous episodes of Talking Apes on our website at www.globio.org backslash Talking Apes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions for us here at Talking Apes or ideas for future podcasts, you can email us at media at globio.org. That's media at G-L-O-B-I-O dot org. I'd like to thank Talking Apes producer Meg Stark for all of her work behind the scenes on another great episode. And finally, I'd like to thank you for your support gives apes a voice. Help share their voice by making a tax-deductible donation at globio.org. Until next time, I'm Jerry Ellis, and you've been listening to Talking Apes.